Hi, it's Cybergrinding's podcast. Uh, today is a bit unusual because we have two guests uh, uh, who uh, agreed to talk to us and uh, both of them are um, among other things as far as, uh, as far as I understand, paper conservators. Uh, uh, the first one is uh, Angelina Bacalaru. Uh, uh, hi, Angelina. Okay. And the second one is Ashley Brown. Um, hi, Ashley. Hi. <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm not sure about first and second, but it's just, you know, uh, the order in which uh, papers were laying <laughs> yeah. nearby, so <laughs> uh, it's, it's very nice to have you, uh, and um, my co-host is Pavel, he, jo he, he joins us uh, from Moscow, and yeah, I'm Stepan. <laughs> Hi, everyone. So uh, it's, it's really the first time we have uh, uh, somebody as a guest who are not really working with books as their main, you know, uh, uh, as their, their main job. Uh, so you, you maybe have some projects that are related to books or bookish objects, but as far as I understand, your main uh, field is uh, uh, conservation of paper objects in general. So it's, I, I suppose it's mostly notebooks. Ah, uh, well, um... No, actually, we—you'd be surprised. Nope. We do—we um, do come across a lot of um, of paper material in book form or in folio form. Um, probably most notably, last year we had a really big project, uh, really big urgent project to do that was maps, um, very large scale maps, a uh, hundred hundred of them, and spread across four folios, um, and that's. Mm -hmm kind of you, a lot of things come in book form that aren't just notebooks and a lot of times we get very big things <laughs> so so yeah mm -hmm. uh, so i uh, i assume that those kind of projects you can't do from home because uh, what i saw in paper conservation videos uh, you uh, you often use uh, baths to wash your uh, yes. wash your paper yeah, and that should be at least as big as the object. Which is not always necessary, but yeah, generally you need to have space to be able to wash that. Um, and often a sink. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah. Um, there are some, some fun, clever ways of getting around that kind of stuff, especially with large things. Um, Cause you'd be surprised how big paper objects can get, especially when people are kind of attaching pieces together to make even larger pieces. So it's definitely something that, um, yeah, it's quite a logistical issue, but uh, yes, a lot of this has to be done with space. It can't just be in a confined area. And uh, what about uh, the, time, uh, the time frame? I mean, uh, from uh, uh, most of the materials you work with, I assume, are not modern. So they are at least, say, 100 years uh, old. But how much older do they get? Paper appeared, what, uh, like 900 years ago in Europe? Well, in Europe. That, uh, not in Europe. It's like 2000 yeah. years or something. Um, <laughs> you know, that's actually a really good question. I'm trying to think of what the oldest thing is that we've worked on. Um, I mean, obviously, yes, paper spans, you know, nearly a thousand years at this point, but I think uh, the stuff that we work on is actually even more modern than a hundred years old. I mean, you'd be surprised the amount of uh, damage that modern papers um, endure, <laughs> especially, but I think, I guess the oldest thing would be 
for me at least was like, I guess 15, no, 1600s, 15, 1600s um, drawings and very notably uh, currency in the US. So like the earliest, some of the earliest currencies. Um, but I think Angie, you probably would have worked with older things. Oh, I don't remember. I mean, during studying in, in, in Greece, we, I mean, we did work on some quite old material, but it was so many years ago, I can't even remember. But um, <laughs> it's generally 19th century items that, that are more, more common that you can find and that you can work with. Um, yeah, but I honestly have no recollection of the dates back then. Yeah. Oh, the uh, and what kind of things are we talking about? Uh, Georgian ephemera and yeah, stuff? I think what? Victorian as well. A lot of Victorian. I mean, I think I was going to add to that uh, the bulk of the things that we get are 19th century and probably mid 20th century because that's where you see the biggest <laughs> shift in um, the biggest shift in materials used to make paper. Um, and most of the materials used to make paper during those time periods were uh, not long lasting. So higher lignin content in paper in the 19th century, mid 19th century when they had the manufacturing process, industrialization of paper making. And then in the 19, I'd say like 30s to 50s, you have this increase of plasticizers, of brighteners, of all these different types of chemical things you can add to paper to make them really like clean and smooth and, and flashy, but unfortunately doesn't make them last very long and makes them really susceptible to, to damage. So it creates a whole other, yeah, a whole other mess <laughs> that happens from that. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> I guess in, in bookmaking, we can see a sort of decline in quality starting the late 19th century, uh, when uh, mass produced books started to appear and, uh, uh, paper industry, of course, was part of this uh, process, and uh, at some moment, uh, uh, industry wanted to make paper cheaper and cheaper, and I, I guess yeah. this also influences uh, uh, on the durability of the materials and oh, yeah. uh, on, on uh, you know, toughness of your work when you need to yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, recover the materials. And uh, uh, uh... Oh, uh, the word cons conservation presumes in the modern world as little intervention uh, with the object as possible. Uh, so I assume uh, the field no longer uh, artificially whitens the documents as, as they used to. So you, so, you mo so you mostly prevent further deterioration. You don't make the object look uh, artificially yeah. better. I think it's this is always the question that I think creates such like turmoil amongst conservators, particularly of paper, because I think it's such a, an ephemeral at times material. It's super durable sometimes and sometimes it's incredibly fragile. And so we're very much, you know, constantly talking with all stakeholders, be them like private clients or, or you know, institutions that we've worked with who, you know, they have expectations of things looking amazing. And I'm sure you find this with books as well, where it's like, I thought it was going to look like a brand new book. And you're like, nope, it's still an old book. So <laughs> it's constantly this issue. But um, yeah, the, the trend in our, in our field, the, the ethics, the trend in our ethics is really to do as minimal intervention as possible. Um, with that in mind, there is, of course, the fact that 
whoever owns it does have a say in the treatment. So there is definitely a defining line where we say, this is how much conservation will do. And if they want us to go further, we're like, well, you're gonna have to accept that that's now restoration if you are so adamant. But here are the reasons why we don't think you should do that. And if they still wanna do that, then I mean, you know, we're kind of hard pressed to tell the owner of the object that they're not allowed to do something. So there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of like steps <laughs> in how that goes. But it should be hard, you know, and tell, telling, telling the owner that uh, uh, he cannot do something with, with, with their object. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the, the, the issues with private conservation at times that, you know, when, when you're dealing with someone that owns something and they come to you, they just want to, they often want it to look perfect. Um, but and I, I wouldn't say just private. I mean, there's definitely been cases that we've come across. I, I know I've definitely come across with institutions who they, there are people within the institutions who don't understand the limits of, of how far we should go. But in those instances, we definitely can say no. It feels better to say no to them because you're like, you should know better. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. Yeah. And, and uh, the, uh, the ethics in, in your field has been developing rather rapidly because only, say, 20 years ago, museums would go to uh, such lengths at presenting their uh, objects as, as, as beautiful as possible that they crossed many lines that we have today. Yeah. I mean, I think it was like it's been developing a lot late i mean the, the past 10 20 years yeah and i think the worst time i don't want to say this i shouldn't say this no i was i was thinking about the 80s when when conservation first started like happening and there's so many questionable things that happened however it, it we, we we can't judge them that harshly because it was a different time there were not the all the research and all the science and all the chemistry behind what we do like didn't hadn't developed as much and they didn't they didn't know as much so now when we when we look back at decisions made like 30 years ago or more um you know there's a bit of a cringing moment but uh you know we can <laughs> um, but things have have changed and have developed so so much so and we we're also like i think the way that we could we we work at the moment has to reflect the fact that people 20 years from now might still be cringing at what we are doing right now. So we have to consider like the reversibility of what we do and the um, and re retaining parts of original parts of the object without cleaning too much, uh, because you know. Um, there's like one of the, the the most important things right now is that why do you remove the dust why are you dusting things why are you removing this because dust contains so much information about the object so you're basically altering the object itself whether it be paper or whatever i mean this this is throughout conservation so there's there's a lot of new things that we have to think about um and also considering materiality of the object itself or the the paper that you're using um it's just it's just growing and growing more and more. So we, yeah, we just, yeah. I don't know. And that's, this, but yeah. <laughs> no, but that, that's even just the, that's, that's from an archival point of view. I think the other thing that we have to worry about a lot of times is within paper conservation, there's so many different forms of paper artwork. And that's where, when you were saying the dust, there's a lot of instances where artwork of all materials collects dust, but it has to, especially with modern works, it has to do with the, that's that's what the artist wanted 
and then it's like, okay, well, okay, how do we, how do we manage that? And how do we, how do we manage the expectations of the museum versus, or, or the, the person who owns it versus what the artist wanted and, and in the aging process, I mean, there's so many cases like this that we're constantly kind of scratching our heads at and looking at pre in a way precedence of what's happened before. Yeah. <laughs> so. And I, and I guess uh, oxidation also may be a factor that uh, uh, the creator of an art object was, uh, you know, uh, counting on uh, to to change the object over time. So uh, if if some uh, conservator decides to remove oxidation from from, from the object, it just ruins the the idea of the creator yeah. or something. I like recently that. actually talked to a conservator who, like an an older conservator, who mentioned that there was an artwork that they had a drawing that they had cleaned, which was like a early 19th century drawing which had a huge fleck of uh, iron in the paper and it was causing this horrible oxidation and the person that I think museum involved was like get it out um, and so they did and now like that person was saying they look back on that like a cringe moment of like oh Oops. <laughs> uh, they look at it like a cringe moment of like oh god like why did I do that I shouldn't have I shouldn't have done that but at the time you know it's what was done. So yeah, we can't really look back and, and judge. And we hope that people don't look back at us and judge. Mm, they will, but you know. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> Absolutely We're the judgiest. <laughs> Angelina, you mentioned that there's lots of information potentially available uh, from analyzing dust. Could you perhaps give some examples? Because I only know of examples from parchment conservation when they use special sticky tape and then uh, just to clean it. And then they analyze it uh, uh, for uh, DNA and stuff. I don't know the details, but I know that they can determine lots of things about the history of the use of the book, where it was made, where it traveled, who yeah, used the it, how often. Um, thing, <laughs> thing, research. <laughs> um, I, I, there's nothing in that comes particularly in mind. I think I've, I've just been reading a lot and it's always mentioned um, about just the fact that we remove the dust might like might contain so much information about it. And also it's just part of the object, not necessarily about the information that it contains. It's just it's part of the part of the object itself because it has collected it and it, it environmental things. And it, I think that's you learn a lot about. Oh, goodness me. I think is a lot about the environment and and understanding that how how the environment of the time was and what what was happening at the time but at the moment i don't i can't remember exactly what it is so um yeah don't don't quote me on that <laughs> uh, i remember another example where just uh, the distribution of uh, dust uh, uh, between the pages can tell you about the pattern of use which parts of the books were most read, which is also an, in, an interesting source and also part of yeah. the history of um, the object. The, for for an, an example that I that I know of is, um, you know, in uh, when they used to write, when they used to use like Arangal ink and ink in general to write, there there was this uh, this. Um, powder or sand material that was used to dry yes. the ink. Um, mm -hmm. So 
you know, you would open a letter and this would drop out. However, like throwing that away is basically a crime. It is part of the history of the object itself, like that, um, the powder that was used. I don't remember the name, but that is also one thing that just comes in mind um, because, you know, when I opened a letter once and I saw that, I, was like, I didn't know what it was. I threw it away. I thought it was nothing. But, you know, considering from the things that I've learned so far, that happened like quite a few years ago. Now I'm, I'm just thinking like, oh my God, how, why did I do that? Like, I can't do these things. Like I, I hadn't considered what this meant because in, in my mind, I, I could not understand what it was used for because I hadn't seen this before. But, you know, just thinking, thinking back, I'm just, you know, astonished by the fact that I did not think about that and just disposed of it. But that yeah. contains information. That's a huge thing that I think come, our entire lives are spent putting lots of things in little baggies to make sure that we can preserve them to study them later because we may not study them immediately, but they are super important. I mean, I'm just thinking back to the sheer amount of like, well, mold, which has been like the theme of this year for us. And, (laughs) and also um, quite a number of books at institutions I've worked at before where they figured out the entire history of the book from the dust that's in between the guards and it's from the foresight of those conservators who again like they had that experience of throwing it out before and then being like oh that would have had information and then now being like save it (laughs) so vital so yeah it's always always little ziploc bags (laughs) filled with dust yeah and in doing that, are you following your own practice or is there an agreed upon set of protocols in uh, individual organization or in the field in general? Say I, archives, I presume or libraries are interested in keeping Yes, I think it depends on the sheer amount of, um, well, it depends on the capacity of each institution to continue that research because there are lots of, of you know institutions that Um, The content is more important than the object itself, I think is one big thing to think about. And then also there's the concept of um, institutions that don't have access to that uh, that detailed of scientific um, research capabilities. Sorry. Or even the equipment. Yeah, and the equipment and things like this. So it's, I mean, there, there is a lot that has to go into that. But if you do, like, I mean, generally, that's what we would learn in school. That's probably what's considered best practice. And then once a treatment is complete or once an assessment is complete and you have all these little bags, if the, you know, you then ask whoever the stakeholder is to say, you know, do you have this ability to, to research this further? Would you like to? I mean, there could be some really interesting stuff that you find out. Um, and yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, it's like a, I'd say it's 50-50. I'm not always on the research side. I am the one handing the bags to the scientists um, to put in their machines to do this incredible Kind of assessment but yeah it's it really just depends on a case-by-case basis mm. <clears throat> and it is best practice to save things that's for sure best practice to save and then ask later then you know be posed with hey did you save all that dust <laughs> and you're like oh no <laughs> true true uh i i definitely have this feeling that uh, in the past few years uh, uh some attitudes have changed and uh, this is something that we discussed with one of our previous guests uh, brenda gallagher she's a bookbinder and book artist but uh, she also uh 
uh, uh, knows some things about uh, book restoration, book, book conservation, and uh, uh, we talked that uh, uh, modern approaches uh, uh, to understand that some 20, 50, 100 years from now, another conservator may work with your object and uh, you have to preserve as much for, for this uh, future conservator. Uh, not not only the object itself, but uh, as as much of additional things and information and stuff attached to this object, so to make their work uh, you know easier. Yeah, documentation is key, really, really key. Um, yeah, I I really can't. I don't think we can stress it enough. Take take all the notes you possibly can when treating things because it will help somebody in the future. It'll help your client currently. It'll help the institution with things and research in the future. I mean, the sheer amount of information that we can get from a single object that has a lot of real world, modern, present day implications is huge as well. Um, I think, especially in private conservation, there's a lot of uh, a lot of dismissive kind of behavior around documentation, not from the conservator side, but from whoever is receiving that documentation. I mean, I have a lot of clients who I can definitely say are just like, do I really need this like eight page report with all of these pictures? And I'm like, you need it. You need it. You need it. Keep it. File it somewhere important. It's good for insurance purposes. It's good for further research in the future. It's good for provenance. It's good for, I mean, there's so many different reasons why it's important to keep that documentation and to have that kind of like somebody in the future is going to look at this mentality like it's mm. vital like so vital <laughs> if there's one thing you take away from this like keep all your reports <laughs> yeah. could you perhaps give some uh, example of uh, of an object that you worked with and uh, while studying it and documenting in detail discovered something of its oh, provenance yeah. um well recently recently uh gosh which one do i even want to start with i mean i feel like this year has been a, a huge reckoning of documentation for sure um there was well i guess the best actually is probably something that i did for an institution unfortunately i can't because of the nature of a private conservation it's uh, most of the things that we work with are pretty confidential so we can't express directly you know everything that we've worked on and name names, but um, I worked on a photographic collection um, and that was purely just doing, um, it was like a private family collection and we were, I was just doing a rehousing process. And in the process of doing this and documenting it, we found out that the, one of the family members who was doing most of the photography had an exceptional photographic collection, including a camera that was made um, and kind of like signed underneath, like inscribed by, um, not underneath, inside, by a rather famous photographer. And inside of there, they, they inscribed it in such a way that every time they took a picture, it was like a signature that came up. It was incredible. I've never seen anything like this. I told the PMG, the Photographic Materials Group of, uh, of Icon, and we kind of all had this discussion of like, but who, how was this a common practice? Like, was this something like a specific signature by this one artist who is this one photographer who, you know, is an early, early 20th century photographer of, of kind of like very standard 
portraits, like family portraits. You go over to their studio, you sit and you take a picture kind of thing. And it was just really amazing. Um, and not only that, but we found out that that photographic studio, that artist, that photographer studio, the first one he had was down the street from the family home of the client I was working with. So then they were like, yeah, they were basically our neighbors and we were their test subjects. And that's how we got all this free photography in like 1905. And I was like, this is just amazing. So you get this whole new world that you've, you've looked at. And um, at first they didn't want a report. So then I convinced them that they really needed a report. <laughs> and, and they ended up uh, sending that report to um, the estate of this photographer. And it's like still an ongoing thing at the moment. So yeah. You never know what you find. It's really important to keep your documentation. Yeah, interesting. Uh, we, we sort of rushed in into this discussion of um, <laughs> conservation. And I still wanted to return to your your uh, your roots, I guess, and your uh, education. How how did you get to be become uh, uh, a, a paper conservator? Because it's I guess it's a very special trait. And uh, uh, well, how do you get there? <laughs> so can you can you tell a bit uh, about your education and uh, uh, your your past experience and why 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 did you choose this profession? You're up first, Angie. <laughs> I've got the longest story, I think. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> uh, we'll we'll find out. I like to talk. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, well, I'll tell you what. I I bumped into conservation by accident. That's that's how it happened for me. I originally wanted to be well when I was young. I wanted to be what is it? Uh, an archaeologist. However, my mom <laughs> kindly nudged me and she said, you know what, it's a very expensive profession and you like, it's not really good for you. So I was like, okay, fine, I'm going to be an architect. Um, didn't work out. Um, like, anyway, however, accidentally, I found that there was this school um, um, in Athens that is called uh, Conservation of Antiquities and Works of Art. Um, it was a five-year um, now we are we used to be a technological institute now it's a conservation it's a it's a proper uni institute so that's that's changed so yeah i started with that i thought you know what let's just try it i thought it was it sounded exciting and it, it did contain archaeology and things like that that i was like absolutely smitten with um yeah first semester starts with history and archaeology and things like that second semester we start with conservation of paper um, with conservation of, uh, what else did I do? I did paintings conservation, uh, like easel paintings and panel paintings. Uh, what else did we do? Wood conservation, wood identification. Uh, yeah, anyway, so every semester I kept like falling more and more in love with it. So I continue with that. Um, I did work mostly with paintings, uh, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to continue working with paintings, but um, then I thought I'll just do a master's degree uh, again on art on on something. But I chose art on paper, so that's how I ended up in London. The reason why I chose London is another story, but you know whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, basically, it's I've, I started studying in two thousand and five, if I if I'm right. So, yeah, 
Um, and in 2012, I started, um, I think it was September 2012 that I got in London, started at Camberwell um, College of Arts in art on paper conservation. Um, they, they, they have books as well, but I preferred the art on paper. So then I did that. Uh, that's where I met Ashley, actually. That's how our, <laughs> story, our story just connects. Um, and then I was basically directly after uni, I was employed in a public institute, which, um, and I'm still there. Um, <laughs> I can't really say much about that. Uh, and, but like Ashley, like part of her story is that she went back to the US, but when she came back, um, she built, uh, because it's all her, like I have to say, like I am just a mascot <laughs> at this point. Uh, she yes. started with her first. <laughs> Uh, and I, I basically um, work with like any, I work with paper, of course I do, I still do, but part of our um, collaboration, let's say, is also to, I, I do some paintings conservation, uh, like on the, like on the side, because these things do crop up. I, I don't do extensive treatments, but um, yeah, it's just, it's just part of it. Oh yeah, I forgot, I forgot how where you were working when we started this. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> so yeah. yeah, I think that's that's me so far. I keep um, I keep doing like I, I love I love conservation. I still do it. I still learn about it. I um, and I I do do a lot of art on the side. That's just my thing. Yes. Like yes, she does. She does a lot of art on the side. It's really nice. <laughs> super nice art i've tried a lot of things i've tried lino printing which i still kind of do sometimes um i've done uh i've done some book binding actually because that was also part of my studies in greece so i do i do have that but i don't do like binding conservation because i didn't study i know how to bind books i know how to make it but not really how to do a whole treatment so that's that's that it would be great if you can uh, send us some of uh, some of the photos uh, oh, yes. of uh, the things you made. <laughs> yeah, of course. Because yeah, we, we would be glad to share them uh, uh, as an uh, announcement of this podcast. And uh, I'll tell you so what, nice. I've got I've got this that I bound the other day. Well, the other day, it's just uh, it's okay. just a Coptic yeah. stitch. Yeah. It's nothing, nothing. Coptic stitch, yeah. Yeah, nothing major, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I quite I quite enjoyed these. Uh, this is <laughs> this was like some painting um, paper that I had. And I just like to do it. We will clear my mind. So we were just discussing with Pavel that uh, our today's guests are uh, a bit uh, uh, further from our uh, usual, you know, uh, cohort of guests who are mostly bookish people and bookbinders. <laughs> yeah, still. Just kidding. Still with that <laughs> bookbinder, yeah. There's still one little part. Uh, mm. Yeah, I started just just to help my. Um, I think just just to relax because I love that the whole the, the stitching it really relaxes me and it really helped me I, I was really depressed at some point um and I had to do something so I started that I, re I remembered what I was taught in Greece and I was like okay we'll do that <laughs> so I just yeah. started and it really helped um yeah but uh, it's more artistic than it. she's definitely the 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 book the book leaning person i i was like oh a stitch because everyone here is like a coptic stitch and i was like oh that's that's nice <laughs> <laughs> so yeah 
It is also very impressive that uh, uh, following your story, we can see that you you learned to create to switch paths from time to time and uh, you know change the areas of study and uh, uh, this is truly impressive because I don't know in, in my experience at least uh, I, 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 I was stuck with computer science for so many years that it's uh, uh, well it's it's an old story as well but it was a, a troubling moment of my life <laughs> definitely um, yeah, we also we also just had a, a bookbinder from Athens. Uh, uh, we actually with him uh, just just a week ago. Uh, Dimitris, uh, uh, Dimitris, could, I, I I'm sorry. I, I wouldn't butcher his surname once again, but uh, he's uh, on Instagram is Dimitris Kouts uh, or Dimitris Kouts, and uh, uh, he's a very nice uh, uh, binder, and uh, I don't know if, he's, if, he, if you saw him or his works. <laughs> no, no, I, I will. I will try and catch the episode. I hadn't had time. It's been a quite a busy, uh, busy few weeks. It wouldn't be published until March or something oh, okay. because we just scheduled it. And yeah, it it usually takes a couple of weeks before we edit it, and uh, you know the scheduling <laughs> allows to publish the new one. Oh, uh, so uh, I guess we're moving to Ashley now. Yes. Ah, yes. So um, I got into paper conservation because, um, well, I was I was very fortunately like aware of it from kind of young age, because I think nobody really knows what it is <laughs> until until you get to university and people are talking about careers and things. But I grew up uh, just outside of Washington, D.C., um, and there are a lot of museums in Washington, D.C. Uh, including the Smithsonian Institution, which is actually a collection of like 11 museums that are all for the most part free. So it's everybody's school trip all the time. It's what you do on the weekends. And um, yeah, so I was, I was going to museums quite often uh, and I knew that I wanted to work like with art um, and my parents were like really like no, <laughs> just not, not why. <laughs> and so um, they were supportive though. They were like, okay, you have a talent in this, like as an artist, I was really into drawing, I was really into painting. And they were like, but you're really good at math and science. So like, can you please like maybe consider doing something in math and science? And I was like, absolutely not. And I wanted to do art history. And I ended up in, in the UK because I have relatives there. I had gone for a few summers and I was applying to schools in the US and they were still are extortionate. Um, so I thought, let's just see, you know, what are the prices in England? What, what should I, maybe I should try. And I ended up going to the University of Manchester uh, because they had a really, really interesting art history program, very like British focused at the time, but um, which sounds a bit, strange but they did it was a, a focus um of kind of the creation of the ra the um because the, the, at the time i think like 18th 17th and 18th century england was really focused on uh practical matters not so much on art uh but it became really apparent how much art actually contributed to a lot of practical things like land ownerships um horses the sheer amount of horse paintings these people have um, <laughs> like, like, uh, 
a lot of things to do with portraiture and status and things like this and and all of it became like a language and and very much formalized at one point and i found that all really interesting because as much as i don't think that everything should have like a taxonomy and like it should be so rigidly organized it does help quite a lot and it gave me a really good insight to uh, a kind of random field especially since you know my background was all mostly math and science but anyway to cut it back you know cut a long story short i really still wanted to do conservation and i was becoming more and more interested in it and my parents were like look the thing is we only let you do this art history degree because like it's your bachelor's degree for your master's we'd like you to do something a little more practical something that involves these other skills that you have and i was like well it's funny you say that <laughs> conservation is a lot of science, um, more so than I even expected. <laughs> so I ended up uh, going to Camberwell where I met Angie and we, um, yeah, I just really enjoyed it. I liked working with my hands. I liked the science. I liked the science so much. I wasn't even that great at it, but I really loved it a lot. Um, and it really pushed me to kind of be interested in research in general. But when I graduated, I, like many other foreign students, had to go back to their home country. And I went back and worked at Smithsonian for a little while with an absolutely excellent conservator, Janice Ellis, at the American History Museum, um, the National Museum of American History. And um, I highly recommend you talk to her as well, because she's a great, great book conservator, an absolute legend in, in, and a very nice person. Um, and she gave me a lot of advice on how to go about conservation from a private perspective. Um, because I think in Europe, there's a lot of emphasis on working at institutions. I mean, in general, I think the dream is to work for an institution, but that's not always the case for everyone. And I, yeah, you know, when I came back to England, I finally got my visa in order and my partner is here who I've been with since then. Um, we were living in London and it was really difficult to find a conservation position after being away for nearly two years. Um, so I took a series of very strange jobs, all in the arts, uh, that I, like, Angie's like trying really hard not to laugh because they were really strange. All of my alumni were like, what are you doing? So I worked as a, a PA and collection manager to an ultra high net worth individual, which means a billionaire. And I helped him uh, manage his collection to a certain extent and do research and things. Um, but it was also as a personal assistant position, which was wild. Um, and then I worked as the head of conservation at John Jones, which was a quite famous um, Frame. conservation framer. Yeah, conservation framer. Um, mount maker, uh, plinth maker, like anything you needed for a presentation of an artwork, you could go to them. Um, and I worked for them basically in the last year and a bit of their existence because they have since closed, unfortunately. Um, and that was also a wild job because it's looking at conservation from both a private perspective and from within a framers. So it's all to do with exhibition design. Mm -hmm. um, so it was like a really big crash course into private everything to do with art. And it really is like much more than just, you know, the actual information, the beauty of the artwork, the, the conservation science and research, like suddenly you're smacked with like, 
insurance and the economics and the logistics and customs and all of these really very intensive, like financially intensive motives for why things happen within the arts and how that works with institutions as well. And that made me kind of convinced to stay in the private sector because it is like the wild, wild west. It's really, um, really strange. <laughs> um, and I think good, it's a good learning curve. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, and no, I just, um, yeah, I wasn't sure whether I should mention JJ, but yeah, that's how, that's how yeah. I got into this. She, Ashley would call me for paintings, consultations and things like that. And that's how it got, it, it got going, let's say. Yeah. And I should say the calls were definitely like, somebody FedExed something uh, from like Miami and put their <laughs> foot through it but it was a painting, help. <laughs> like, it was always these like horrible situations. And I think that's one thing that private sector conservation gives that museums cannot, <laughs> which is the weirdest, strangest issues of damage and the strangest questions that clients bring. I mean, the first question I got really in the first month of being on the job was if I wanted to go to a lecture series, not even a lecture series, like a workshop, at the Maritime Museum in Greenwich in England, um, in London, uh, about artwork on yachts. Because we had several clients who had yachts that they wanted to put like million pound drawings on, including one who wanted to put it on their yacht, but like in the pool. So when they're swimming, they could see it in the pool. Like, I can't make this up. <laughs> so it's it's amazing. It's a really fun, terrifying world to, to work in. I guess there well, there may have been well, some Russian. <laughs> Sorry, Paolo. <laughs> well, they, they do say that uh, Selvita Mundi uh, spent at least a few months. It did. On the I'm yacht. not even going to say how I know that. <laughs> Half a billion dollars. Mm. 15 cents paint and you I mean the, the, the worst question of it because I was saying the same thing and then my friend who works at, as a gallerist was like you think that's a, a, the question the real question is how do you even explain that to your insurer in fact who do you get to insure a half a billion pounds on a half a billion pounds on water <laughs> like how 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 do you do this and then, and that's that's something that I think is a bit of a bad thing within the private sector is that you start thinking about it from that monetary point of view quite a lot. And obviously the loss of Salvatore Mundi would have been, like if it had been, if anything had happened to it, would have been a loss for humanity. But at the same time, it also is a very calculable financial loss. And it's like, how do you even do that? How does one even go about calculating these things it's yeah so i'm glad i don't work in insurance but i work with a lot of insurers and i know enough to stay away <laughs> and uh, speaking of uh, insurance and con conditions i assume that after spending lots and lots of money on conserving uh, uh, books and, uh, and papers and maps people then keep what uh, they receive from you in much better conditions than before. You should hope, or don't they? you should hope. 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they certainly don't always keep their reports. So that's, you know, strike number one. Um, I, I think most, for the most part, I think it, Angie and I are, well, I, I, I don't know if I'm scary enough. I don't know if I, if I impose enough to them the importance of this. Like a lot of times I feel like a bit of a mom being like, make sure you take care of it better and all this kind of stuff. But, um, but no, I think we, I think the price of conservation, when you start talking about the financials of things, I think that's usually what gets them a bit awake and, and worried mm -hmm. and concerned and ready to take care of things more. But the flip side also exists, mm -hmm. which is where we have a lot of people who, you know, are really scared like too scared to display things, too scared to, 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 to turn their air conditioning on, too, you know, like they're too scared to do things to such an extent because they went down the same rabbit hole that we went, we go down, you know, but they obviously don't understand it as well as we do. So I had a client who knew about um, PD 5454, which is like a, a standard of, uh, it's, it's a standard, it's an ISO, in um created in london and it basically describes the conditions in which most museums should be storing uh, storing store. displaying yeah everything yeah it's it's just like the condition the environmental conditions um and they had access to it somehow and they read it and were terrified that like their paintings were going to melt off the wall and i was like it's not that deep guys it's gonna, it's gonna be okay but it was two hours spent you know, at their house on a, on a Thursday night being like, don't worry, it's gonna be okay. <laughs> There's no direct sunlight on your painting, you should be fine. You've got like eight layers of UV protection on your sunroof because you didn't, you just were that scared, it's gonna be okay. I mean, trust me, <laughs> like, it's, it's okay. <laughs> so yeah. With, with people, uh, with people who are getting terrified, it, it sometimes gets really interesting because there is this whole, uh, uh, you know, um, group of people among uh, uh, bookbinders and book-related people who uh, preach that uh, all old books uh, should be handled only in gloves. Mm. And uh, uh, then all professional uh, book workers uh, uh, say that, well, yeah, there are certain occasions when you need to work with books in gloves, but in most, on most occasions, gloves prevent you from uh, uh, feeling, yeah. feeling uh, different things and uh, working more precisely. So you have more chance to damage a, a book uh, working in gloves than the working, when working without gloves. So no, that's that's the wrong point of view, and you shouldn't uh, just uh, uh, take it on you know on, on your, uh, as a, as a, as a, as a fact. But these people continue to pursue every every post uh, with uh, professionals handling books with, with without gloves, and this is yeah. wrong. You shouldn't do that. <laughs> there's there's definitely an added yeah, like there's there's such an attitude of that um, in so many things in books, and I would definitely say in photography had a number of, um, oh, it, well, in, in photography, yes, it's important to have gloves, but like the gloves that some people show up with are not the gloves in question that they should yeah. use. So, you know, 100% cotton gloves, 
like, well, at times quite good. Um, then it's like, well, do you want to use like really kind of burnished gloves? So you make sure you don't create scratches on the emulsion. You shouldn't be touching the emulsion anyway. Do you, um, there's, there's so many, like, it, it depends on the situation. And again, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, if you don't know what situation you're in, or you don't know, you know, you don't have the training to do it, just, just don't do it. Somebody who does have the training will know how to do it and will be able to guide you. And you can call people. I mean, this is something that I think I get, I think we get a lot of emails and calls about how best to handle something where I'm like, look, I don't even need to go there. I can just tell you what to do, but they're, you know, it's that, that terrified feeling is really rough. Um, in fact, the, the worst situation I had of it was one time at John Jones where this guy had come in with one of the most incredible daguerreotypes of his family from Sweden in like, I think it's like 18, like it was really early daguerreotype. And he had kept it in the dark um, in a closed room because it had kind of split from its frame. There was some kind of damage to it and it wasn't, it was no longer sealed. So he was really afraid of the light, but he didn't think about the oxidation. So he left it in this room unsealed for, I think it was like 10 years and then brought it to us and was like, I don't know why it's still fading. Is it just because it's old? I don't understand what's going on with this mirroring. And I had to tell him, you know, you, yeah, it's good that you kept it in the dark, but you should have brought it to somebody because at this point it's already too far gone to, to really preserve. And there were faces just completely gone at that point. And so we did our best to, to seal it um, and then reframe it in a way where it had like a little curtain. It was really cute. Um, oh. <laughs> it was really nice uh, because he was still scared about the light. We were like, I don't think the light would have done as much as the, the, the you know, the, the air did. So, so yeah. It, and whatnot. So there's a lot of things that contribute to. Yeah. Uh, if, I'm, if I may, I would like to come back to one of the comments you uh, made about not being taken seriously. It reminds me of uh, one of the interviews we made recently with Katie Abbott, a conservator from uh, London, uh, who started uh, back in the 80s when it was a really male dominated world and uh, uh, they really wanted her to do this teaching she and uh, they did uh, they didn't take uh, her as a bookbinder seriously and it took her years and years to uh, uh, to rise in their eyes so she had to work even harder than the man would you say that changed by now how much better is the situation well, and is it different in, in, in the conservation area? Because uh, uh, what was uh, special about Kathy's uh, uh, stories is that uh, she came into Bookbinder's workshop where there were like 60 men and uh, women only did, uh, did uh, uh, sewing of books. Uh, but uh, is, it, is there any difference in conservation field? Well, it's mostly girls now. <laughs> Which is, um... I think though, Paper conservation is mainly girls. However, I think with the book binding, there's still a little bit of an issue because mm -hmm. still 
it, it was considered as a man's job to be a bookbinder. And you'll find that there's more men bookbinders than women. Like my teacher in Greece was a man. Like I, I didn't, uh, he, he was not like, he, he was obviously not a woman. He was a man that was doing like the, the, the binding. And he was teaching us about paper conservation as well. Um, so I think that that might still be around, but uh, there's like there's main there's a lot of girls, there's a lot of women working in conservation in way less men. We like so in Greece we divided um, like we didn't start with many boys uh, when we started in that semester when I did it was we had about six of them, and it was twenty plus people in total, so six six about six boys. Um, so first, I think first couple semesters, it was mainly theoretical. And then we would divide into the, say either the antiquities or the, 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 the works of art. And guess how many went to the works of art and how many went to antiquities, which contained um, metal and glass and ceramics and all the like things that you have to carry things around. So we had two of them we kept and everybody else just went to the other side. So, you know, this, in paper, like it's more, it, it's way, way less. And I'm surprised I, that those two went. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think, I think we had two. And you know, of course, others from other semesters, but I think from our semester, I think it was just two, two guys. In, in Camberwell, there was one. He was yeah. like our token boy. <laughs> oh, often, often it's like that. Yeah. Just, yeah. But I think as well in conservation as a whole, they're definitely, that that kind of like slightly sexist attitude still exists because at least in the US, um, most of the conservators who I worked with, be it in like DC or New York, definitely had, like there's a, a complex I think that they have in the US about it being very scientific um, and expressing everything with a hugely vast chemical knowledge, which I think is amazing. But I think it, but I, I've been told and I, I have noticed that it definitely stems from this concept of like conservators pre-1980 were considered basically cleaners. Like you you, you were just a really good cleaner or like a, a collection manager or custodial kind of concept. Um, which is weird because like it had like a big spike in like the like early early 20th century. There was a lot of very famous collection managers, curators, and and conservators who were kind of emerging, and not proper conservators, restorers, but um, you know, <laughs> at the time that was that was what it was. And then this kind of decline, and I don't know why. I've I've never found out myself, but yeah, there's definitely that attitude, and it, it comes a lot with that whole the, the 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 fact that conservation studios within institutions are usually in basements. Um, for protection of objects from light and things like that, but that's where most custodial services happen as well. Logistics, um, everything like that. So at least when I was at Smithsonian, it was like us, the photography studio, exhibition design, like as in paper conservation and all the different conservation groups, um, and, and then janitorial services. Um, and then you would go upstairs and like see the light and that's where like the curators live. And it was this very like weird upstairs, downstairs kind of vibe. Um, I don't know if that's really sexist. That's just more the attitude of being taken seriously. But um, yeah, so I think that's, that probably contributes a lot to that whole ethics discussion of like really trying to, to explain and be proper in our method so that we can, you know, really not just be putzing around cleaning stuff. It's, it's a little bit more detailed than that. 
Yeah, it's it certainly is more like we have to explain ourselves, or not explain ourselves, but we have to just a lot of explaining. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I think I think for better word, I think it's just justify our existence as conservatives, just to because people yeah. are like, what are you? What are what are you? What are you doing? Who are you? And why are you telling me that this has to happen this way? Why do you get to touch stuff? Why do you get to touch it? Always a question. <laughs> oh yeah, I I love it. Oh, that, that's another reason why I love going to conservation because I got to touch stuff <laughs> yeah that's probably the biggest reason why we went into this we got to touch the stuff because you know we, we, like, I'm the conservator I get to mm. I get to handle this and you don't yeah but, but there's a lot of chemical like I mean the thing is it's like okay you get to touch the art why it's like because I had to endure you know organic chemistry to, to know how to touch this thing to like yeah, really be allowed like it's it comes with its drawbacks at times, but it's still very, very satisfying, so. And to go back to the whole glove situation, um, if your hands are clean, oh, yeah. I don't see why you, you can't handle something. As long as your hands is... are clean and washed, like, it's fine. And it's I really it's like COVID, it's like, just wash your hands. <laughs> just wash your hands. <laughs> Yeah. And then just don't touch your face. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. After you touch the object, don't lick your, your fingers and don't, don't touch your face because, well, oh God. Yeah. there may be poison on this old book. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> reading this blog about biocodicology actually uh just this morning and they they were saying that they on this book they found um aside from human <laughs> dna they also found um, streptococcus and another another uh, microbe that causes acne. So I'm like, basically, yeah, you touch, uh. touch it. And I was just thinking about pimples popping on my face. Like this is just, <laughs> and Staphylococcus, which is like horrendous. And so, you know, you just, oh. Uh. So yeah, oh, uh. just hands. And again, just wash it after handling the document, especially yeah. not clean. I, and one last thing I will say about the whole concept of, of, you know, justifying conservation and things like that. It has been a serious problem, I would say, until this year. Because this year, no museums were open. Lots of people had the time at home to go through their storage, or they didn't have the time to access things that were being transported or were in storage elsewhere. And when they finally were out of lockdown and were able to see things, I mean, the sheer number of emails that we received, like I'd say mid-June from people being like, oh my God, there's this thing growing on this, this paper. What is it? What is this? Am I in trouble? And I was like, yeah, yeah. You are, yes, of course, it's mold. <laughs> they're like, oh my God, why? And I was like, well, this, these are the reasons why. I mean, like, Literally, Angie knows my whole summer was spent like wearing a mask, like not just in daily life, but I had like a HEPA filter, you know, double-sided filter mask. I'd say 50% of the time in the studio, um, if not at times 80%, because everything coming in was mold, mold, mold. And mold is incredibly harmful. If you're ever working with mold, please take the appropriate steps to take care of yourself. You can really, you can die, you can die it's incredibly harmful, um, especially because most of the mold that grows on complex materials such as paper, 
books, um, things with many different types of materials in it, all degrading at different rates, um, organic materials, and at times, to a certain extent, inorganic, can kill you. So please be careful. But trying to explain that to people was probably the first time where everyone was like, oh, I'm so glad I called you. And I was like, wow. <laughs> No one's ever that happy to talk to a conservator. Yay. So yeah, now I think we're in a bit more of high demand because people realize it's very important to look after their stuff. Speaking of mold, can absolutely any mold be removed or are there types that are just too dangerous? One historical anecdote from Russia comes to mind. As you know, in the center of Moscow, on the Red Square, there is uh, the uh, the mummy yes. of Lenin. Yes. Yeah. And, oh, uh, I know this. <laughs> yes, and and it's been lying there for almost a yeah. hundred years now, uh, since it, uh, since he was put in in there, an, an institute was founded to look after him and later after mummies of our, uh, other communist leaders, and back in the sixties a new uh, uh, type of mold they never encountered before started to grow on the lid of the worldwide revolution. They collected it and sent it to, uh, to, to an institute without telling the source of the mold. And in a month, they, uh, they are uh, said to have received uh, the following answer, uh, extremely dangerous, uh, impossible to remove, do burn the object. Uh, <laughs> uh, so things I've found out about mold this year, I really feel like I should, this should be like a whole blog post or something. Things I found out about mold this year. Uh, one, no mold can be fully removed. So yeah, it's not even a question of like, remove, like it cannot be removed. It's like, none of it can be removed. It is eternal. I'm sure you've seen loads of these documentaries about like the largest organism on earth is fungi. Wow. It's like my, I, I literally didn't eat mushrooms until like recently because the concept terrifies me of these. It's, it's like a, like a sentient, non-sentient being like they're terrifying and they communicate and they, they lie dormant. That's the word for mold. So when it's not moist, it lies dormant. So the issue at hand is not so much what you can do to get rid of it, because you can't. What you can do is how, in what specific situation you've got, can you do to make this thing become dormant? Um, as I found out <laughs> this summer, a lot of those things are conflicting. <laughs> we had, I would be asking Angie for advice with something and then other conservators for advice with something and then biological specialists about like for a particular project, you know, like, well, what do I do? And some people would say, oh, uh, dry it. Some people would say, oh, seal it. But like, it might get humid. They're like, but seal it. It's, it's better to seal it than to dry it. And some people said to dry it than to seal it. And really what I learned, it has to be, it has to be, I know. Has and to this will literally divide conservators and, and, and biologists. Like, it's not even just us, it's everyone. Everyone's like, how do we deal with this thing? Um, and I, I watched a documentary about some mummies that really gave me a great insight this summer, which was that, um, okay, so it's really gross, but like athlete's foot is a type of fungus, right? And it is present, living, thriving, living its best life on the feet of some of the um, early dynastic 
Egyptian mummies. So you have a dead thing with dead flesh, but the fungi is still alive. And so, and, and like it can, it's catching, like somebody could catch, you know, athlete's foot from a mummy. Like it's, um, and in that documentary, the archeologist in question was basically saying, you know, it really did like, should we seal it off to protect ourselves or like, you know, to, to decontaminate it? And this biological uh, specialist they had said, no, the best thing you can do is desiccate it. You can try your best to seal it off, but if you do that, do know you can never open it again. <laughs> like it's, it's uh, the best relationship they gave was basically if you have a slice of, you know, if you have bread that's gone off, don't open the bag. If you can see the mold present there, don't open the bag and stick your head in and be like, is it moldy? Like just, it's done. Just keep it sealed, throw it away. <laughs> like that's it. If you must open it, the steps to take are desiccate it with everything you possibly have. If it's still alive, hoover it with an appropriate hoover that's not going to just extract and send it out into the world. If you, you know, have a mask on, have gloves on, make sure you're wearing clothes that are not, you'd like wear an apron, wear something to cover yourself. Um, God forbid you're one of the people working on Lennon's body, like, like <laughs> cover yourself, cover the whole red square. Like they, they move incredibly fast. They're airborne. They're, you know, they're, they're really dangerous. Um, and in that case, I would say like the best thing they could, I think they, they did maybe, maybe the best thing possible, which is to leave it perfectly sealed. It is that slice of moldy bread. Don't open it. Don't let it get open, seal it, make sure it stays sealed. And hopefully over time, maybe it'll become like a slightly anoxic environment and that will cause it to become dormant anyway. It'll breathe too much in the space that, because fungi breathes. So it will, you know, breathe all the air in the space. It's allotted if it's well sealed and then fingers crossed. Just go to sleep. Yeah, just, yeah, it'll become dormant and then maybe you can handle it. But even then, as soon as it's open to you know, fresh, beautiful, you know, slightly moisturized Russian air. It's like, it's on again. <laughs> like it's, yeah, I, I actually, it's funny because my husband is really into um, Russian history and stuff. And I think he, he mentioned this article, like he mentioned an article that was talking about this where he was like, do you like some weird mold? And I remember being like, I don't want to hear it. I've had enough of mold. <laughs> like, I don't want to talk about mold. So yeah. Mold. Ugh, mold. <laughs> so he, here we are talking about the real curse of the mummy. Because it's, it's yeah. like a... <laughs> They're like, oh, I've been poisoned. Like it's like, no. <laughs> you just breathed in some some black mold on a on a mummy's foot. Like, ugh. Gross. And on a, on a serious note, I mean, I, I do know, I, a conservator I worked for in America knows someone who died from a an excavation of a, a ship that um, he had been working on and, and retrieved a book that was half submerged in water that had mold growing on the very specific animal glue that was on the, the binding. And I think he died in like two weeks, you know? It's, it's really serious. Mold is, mold will live far beyond us, far beyond cockroaches, far beyond atomic bombs. So it's, it's, <laughs> Ugh, mold. I mean, maybe an atomic bomb will desiccate it forever. You never know. 
I don't know. There's mold growing in Chernobyl that has not changed since before Chernobyl. Like it doesn't show radioactivity. It beat the radioactivity. It's like, I, this, it terrifies me. This is the stuff that keeps me up at night. <laughs> There also there also is some moss there. They decided to test it on 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 uh, International Space Station because it's uh, it's uh, not its radioactivity, but it's uh, it absorbs radioactivity. And they thought they make yeah. they can try to make panels with this moss and to protect astronauts uh, from nice. from the space uh, space uh, radiation. And uh, well, Chernobyl helps <laughs> our, yeah. our, our <laughs> spacemen. <laughs> That's still, that just sits there and makes me think like there's just going to be some horrific horror movie with a, with mold that attacks the space station and then it's just a mold in yeah. space. <laughs> going. Anyway, sorry, mold, I get, ugh. <laughs> um, I also, I also, I'm, I'm quite happy that you mentioned uh, your, uh, your time working at uh, John John's because, um, uh, the thing that we discussed with, uh, uh, once again, uh, to, to mention her with Katie Abbott is that uh, she had some, she had spent some time uh, working for uh, uh, an antique book dealer. And uh, she told us that uh, uh, it's, it's interesting and strange how book dealers and conservators and bookbinders, bookmakers have absolutely different languages when they are speaking uh, uh, about the same objects, about the same books, about the same parts of the book or something like that. And I guess mm. this, your experience also gives you some insight in how uh, different uh, people, different professionals use different language and uh, a language definitely affects how we, you know, think about some objects and how we, how we, how we value uh, them. And uh, what's, what's, so what's your experience in, with that? Um, I think for us, the biggest issue was well, there was like a lack of knowledge of types of paper, but that I think is pretty standard across um, people not in, conser in, in conservation or bookbinding who aren't familiar with different types of paper and old paper. But I think the weirdest thing was kind of relearning the language of mount making that framers use. That was quite intensive actually. And what's really, what was really cool about John Jones is that their mount makers, they really, um, they wanted to make sure they were people who had like a, a BA, like a bachelor's degree or some type of postgraduate diploma or some experience working in conservation and a knowledge of, of conservation so that they could be better suited to do the mount making. Um, but they also really into, there's like this series of books, I'm gonna have to look it up. It's like, it, they're, they're, they're written by a conservator a very well-known conservator, Angie, like, I think it's gonna, it's like, it's not the history about making, but it's like mounting artworks on paper, I think is the title of the book, but it's like a series of two or three books and they all had to read that. And so they had this really specific knowledge of, 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 of vocabulary of mount making, but that wasn't always used amongst other framers. So then when I worked with other framers, I'd say like, oh, it's this kind of amount. And they'd be like, oh, what? And they'd say <laughs> something and I'd say like, oh, that's what I thought it was, but okay. Um, but other than that, no, it was pretty, I don't know, did you feel different? No, no, I think, well, the only thing for me is that people confuse um, acrylics with oils and vice versa. We get that, oh. I get that a lot. Like, it's like, yeah. oh, this is like an oil 
it's a, on whatever, or they just always say acrylics. And I'm like, this is not an acrylic. Anyway, that happens. <laughs> um, I mean, I think for me, because I was educated in two different countries, <laughs> the main yeah. is quite, quite interesting just to transfer. Like the first year, in um, because Cam Camberwell was two years, our studies, the first year I spent in Camberwell was basically relearning everything that I had learned about paper conservation, but just turning it into English. <laughs> so, because I, yeah. uh, I already knew uh, the the first year the first year material I had already learned it in Greece so I knew I knew all of it it was just like a retraining but in a different language so that was quite interesting um, and now I can't I don't have any um, terminology in Greek I forgot all of it and uh, whenever I speak with Greek conservatives I just have this like, oh, how do we, how do you say that in Greek? And they just look at me in a, in a face like, what the, what the hell? Yeah. Well, I'm a little pretentious person, like, but I just have nothing. So, yeah. It's funny, actually, because the other thing is also with materials. Like, I had to have that moment from US to UK. And now I've, so basically I've kind of been stuck in, in France for the past two months and I've met up with some conservators and you know, I've been looking into like certain materials for, for people and I don't know how to, I don't know any Sorry, of them. I said, I, I don't think you're like stuck in France. Oh, oh yes, Ashley. <clears throat> it's really nice. No, but it's, it's nice, but also like kind of scary. It's weird. It's, it's weird as well. Cause like, I'm, I'm, I've been joking. I'm like housewifing it because obviously I can't do much work because I don't, have a studio so I've just kind of been meeting with conservators and talking with them and talking with people and talking and sending emails and preparing for people okay. to send art to us and talking some more and it's it's been this weird like two months especially living out of a suitcase so there's that too it's been like we we planned for 10 days for like Christmas holiday and like here we are in February <laughs> um but no yeah I can't I don't know any materials like, I don't know I, it took me so long to relearn, you know, what is the American version of Bondina? What's the American version of Melanex, Mylar? Like it's yeah. all these different types of things. And then certain materials aren't available in the UK because understandably it's an island. So they get, um, it's kind of limited how you can source materials. And so things that would be amazing to use in the US, I'm like, where's the multi-sorb? The multi-sorb is great for, you know, like, blotter washes and they're like what is multi-sore but I'm like no like it's there's a lot of stuff that requires a lot of extra planning but but no no I didn't um other than that yeah I mean Angie had the worst of it trying to translate all of it so <laughs> yeah but thankfully I, I did, this did not create any issues um with putting it back in in words I suppose somewhere but yeah <laughs> I guess I had a, a bit uh, similar experience with bookbinding because I, I when I started uh, studying bookbinding, uh, I, I mostly used uh, English language books. So most of the terminology I used and I knew were from these books. And then I went to United States to study for, for, for some time. And uh, so I, I got even more uh, English language terminology. And uh, 
and I also had my my uh, Bukhbani courses in Moscow, and where I had to teach in Russian language. And uh, almost every lesson, I had these these moments when I was well in English. Uh, this uh, process or this uh, part of the book is called like this. I don't know its name in Russian. Sorry, you will have to deal with that. <laughs> <laughs> And and this this is awful, and especially when you are stuck, start when you start to speak to some professionals, uh, to book professionals, and you're like, okay, I don't know how how this thing thingy is called in Russian, but uh, you have to believe me that I'm a professional, that I know things I'm talking about. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I I remember you starting to buy old Soviet books on, uh, yeah. on bookbinding. And finally, discovering how, how all those tools are called. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. 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 Because, I think I still have all my notes from Greece, so uh, I can always just get, go back. But it's just so difficult. I've been here for so so long, and I just you know I I have forgotten half of, not half of my Greek, but you know if I don't if I don't use the language, it's really difficult to just you know. Just, you know, everyday speech is fine, but conservation stuff, like anything that has to do with my professional life, it's it's gone because I speak the the English part of conservation right now. So it's just quite. Uh, but would there even be a job for you uh, in Greece? I don't know. Um, I mean, you know, I left. Um, I left with the intention to return and there's there's museums there is like i think this um i don't know about paper conservation to tell you the truth uh, a lot but i would have probably gone into more uh panel painting or um painting conservation in any case however um after like after finishing i didn't feel like going back and i just i just came back i just i went for holidays and then just came back and i got my job uh, I had an interview for my job, well, part of my job, that is not my job anymore, but it was like in August and I started in October. So after that, I haven't been out of work since then. And most of my friends in Greece, either like the conservation, the conservators that I know, like they're either doing something else that like, I know someone has become an actor or they've gone into more architect architecture or something. Or if they do do conservation, they, they, they work only with like really short term contracts and they go around Greece. And, you know, it's, it's fun. It's fine to do it for a little while. But if you don't have anything stable, it just gets a little bit, you know, tiring and everything. And it just takes a toll on you. And, you know, you need something that you can constantly know that you can provide for yourself and especially if you have a family what are you going to do so yeah it's i think there's a lot of issues with um with greece and how how they're getting the um, contracts and whatnot and it's a difficult it's also you have to have you have to apply and you have to do all these things um and i don't even know if i go back if i even know how to do conservation in Greece it's like I don't even know how things mm -hmm. work so yeah I mean I I don't I mean you know I don't want to say never but I'm not really planning to go back for some time <laughs> and I've already been here almost like nine ten years and you know kind of tell you something <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah what about you and what about you Ashley have you ever thought about coming uh, back well 
Coming back from France. But yeah, definitely back from France. No, I plan on coming back from France for sure. <laughs> I'm still paying rent on my studio. I was like, wait a minute, I have to go. <laughs> But no, um, well, okay, like I'll try and keep it short because Angie knows I can, I can definitely, uh, I can express quite an argument uh, similar to what she was saying about the, the, the viability of working in conservation in both the UK and in the US, but in the US, um, it actually is pretty, it's pretty difficult. Um, they have a very, what sounds like a good system as far as education goes, which is that if you, you know, there's, it's free to do conservation for at an MA level um, for your masters, but it is a long wait list and a very small class size per year. I have, I had an intern when I was working in New York for a very short contract and she only, and that was, that was, must've been 2016. And she just completed her degree this year. So she didn't start it until last year. Um, so that's, and she had gotten into the course already. And that's why she was a pre-program intern, but she had to be a pre-program intern at various places for like three and a half years. So in a way there's like, That's, that's a bit of a problem. And I mean, other than the fact that the US is a flaming hot mess right now <laughs> in general, um, it's not the most attractive to go back to. But I do want to like, I, I will say like, I always was open to going back for short-term contracts with institutions because um, there was a weird period of, of, of the institutions in the US having like a really difficult structure of of salaries again there was this kind of like curators were getting tons and tons of money um and conservators were getting very very little and so it, and and then departments were being downsized it's not a cost-effective business you're pouring money and materials and consumables into something that's doesn't immediately have a good return because you're obviously you know you're you're investing into an object. You're investing that time, that money, that treatment, the materials needed, chemicals, everything like that into this object's longevity, which yes, from a financial point of view can booster, like boost the, the popularity of the museum. It can boost the, you know, kind of collateral that sometimes museums have, but there was always that issue of like museums don't sell art. So how are they making money if it's only through visitor, visitorship, all that kind of stuff just really compiled into um, this trend of, of museums downsizing their conservation studios. So the bad side is you don't have permanent jobs, but the plus side is you have really, really pretty decently paid uh, private contracts that are short term, but if you don't mind, you know, hopping from one city to another, especially young, like post-program graduates, it's a pretty, it can be pretty sweet. Um, I knew of a few alumni from Camberwell who were American who, who did that. And yeah, it's not like you're not making millions, but to do what you want to do and still have savings, pay off your student loans, things like that, it's definitely viable. Um, on the flip side, I have lots of thoughts about the UK system in itself. Uh, but I think that's like a whole nother, whole nother bag. But yeah, I don't, I don't think I'm going back anytime soon. I think that, but that's more to do with just like the state of America, sad times. <laughs> mm, yeah. Uh, okay, okay, so yeah, uh, so neither of you are, are looking back, 
but uh, what uh, what do you think of when you think of your future? What's next for you? What are your ambitions? Is this it? Is this how you're planning to live your yes. life? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I don't know. I feel you. I'm. 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 Angie knows this. This is like again with that whole UK system thing. I'm on like a full on crusade. I'm like on a full on crusade to elevate the profession because because I think conservation is a field where we've been very peripheral for a very long time. We've been trying to justify the importance of saving these objects and saving these materials. And, and we don't have to justify that. It's obvious they should be saved. I mean, the sheer amount of knowledge that we have come across in the past five years alone in archeology span and conservation of, of previous civilizations knowledge that now affects us and, and we benefit from, and that could have been lost to time is ridiculous like actually ridiculous um it, I, I could list the sheer number of, of scientific discoveries that have happened as of late where people are like oh yeah there was that archaeologist who said that somebody in like 600 bc figured that out already and it's like wouldn't it have been nice if we could have just had a conservator you know treat that at an earlier period and then we could have read that information and look wow innovation like how great is that an innovation from somebody else's research over 2000 years ago or over a thousand years ago or a hundred years ago or you know it, it doesn't matter when all we have to do is look back and that's what i think we as as people who do conservation do is to help people look back and, and reflect and find knowledge but beyond that we're really important for insurance and we're really important in science. In insurance, the sheer amount of collateral that people put on art at the moment is insane. Um, when you see these huge auctions for objects, I mean, those are objects that are that have a direct monetary value. People are taking care of them. People use them as collateral for things. They are very much a part of the economy. So it's really important to take care of those things because it's the only type of, of, of material that you can lose, that you lose the whole value of once it's damaged. Like if you lose a couple of stocks, like you still have some stocks, but like this is a case of like, if you scratch a painting, like boom, <laughs> is it, what's the purpose of it anymore, you know? So or if you if you if you tear apart a book that's like invaluable, or if you get it wet, what it, you know you've lost that information. It's no longer of value. So there's a lot of stock in that. And on the science point of view, I think it's really important because we are looking at materials and how they degrade and age, pat like most of the time older than twenty years. When you buy something, it's like I've got a ten year warranty, and that's just based on how much you know in in the lab they can do uh accelerated aging tests tensile strength tests like all these kinds of things in a controlled environment so that's not even including the concept of pollution or or, or other extenuating factors um and we're the only people who are looking at stuff and how it ages at a way later period and i've heard of conservators working with um ecologists with material scientists and most of those other scientific people are saying, I never really thought about 
what would happen when that adhesive on that tape degrades like that? Or I never really thought about what would happen when that particular plasticizer off gasts after the 20 year mark, because we only look at the 10 year mark. And that is hugely influential to how we make future materials, how we, I mean, it's, it's, it's so like prevalent right now with like climate change and how we make things and how we use energy and all that kind of stuff. A great example is solar panels. We thought they were super amazing. And then we started looking at how we make them and how they degrade. And in both of those instances, it's actually really quite damaging. So it's like, you know, maybe if we, you know, got out of our peripheral and we tried to really reach out to people in these other fields, be it financial or scientific, we could really help people and be, you know, reg I mean, regarded and, and, you know, thought of as more worthy than we currently are as just people fixing stuff or cleaning stuff. But yeah, we could really contribute a lot as well. So that's my crusade. Um, <laughs> join me in my quest of making conservation great again. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mentioned uh, different different uh, consideration of different materials, and as far as I understand, the conservation of plastics also becomes a, a really troubling niche uh, because yeah. uh, some of them are degrading pretty fast, and uh, many uh, cultural uh, and historical plastic objects start to degrade. And uh, it's 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 in some cases it's uh, there is no real understanding how to how to prevent uh, further degradation and to protect them. And, yeah. yeah, reversible. So yeah, yeah, it's typically irreversible. I mean, I think the first time people really started thinking about that was with like really high value artworks, like modern art, but also um, with money because we make plastic money. So the mm -hmm. first I, I did like a whole uh, conservation of of the numismatic, the National Numismatic Collection. That was like the project I worked on at Smithsonian as like a freelance conservator, and it was incredible how much like research went into making durable long-lasting plastic with durable long-lasting ink and the the research is fascinating and it, it never escaped the 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 and mostly in Australia because that's where they make most plastic money the Australian kind of treasury you know, like nobody was really curious as to how they made this plastic or like why it was so durable or anything and what failures they came across at first. And it's actually a pretty cost effective method of making this plastic. It's not really that harmful to the environment. It's not, it's recyclable, you know, but it took a long time to get there. And then we're making plastic that still is really crap. And it's like, well, you could have just, those guys really, they've got tons of research papers that they all published about it and they're really boring but they're really important so you know it's that concept of like you just we just all need to kind of talk across fields to each other uh i wanted to ask you why do you think uh conservators are not being listened to as much as they should be is it partly a class thing particularly in mm, uk i don't know if it's class i think it's I mean, like we have what? Old shirt. Yeah. Because, <laughs> like, yeah, it's like I think I think we're still looked at as like kind of like we're nerdier than librarians, you know. So like people don't want to be lectured 
And like, I literally just gave you guys like my crusade lecture. <laughs> so like all we ever do is lecture people. I'm like, mm, actually, I don't know if you should do that. So like, I think a lot of people just get bored by us. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it, um, which is sad. Ugh, it's really sad. That's, it is a big hurdle actually. Is it currently a one woman crusade or is it an organization, a campaign, a blog? How can people, How people join, join the crusade? Campaign? No, it's, um, it's, it's not a one woman crusade. There's actually a lot of work that like ICON has been doing and AIC have been doing to kind of, and, and um, IIC, IIC, yeah, about, about the like, first off starting with getting us paid better which I think like within institutions, which is like a really big thing because that does become quite a classes issue um, globally. But then I think really the, the, the talking with other scientists and things, it's usually when a conservator has reached, uh, you know, a dead end in their um, chemical knowledge which is hard, but like they'll reach a dead end in their chemical knowledge and have to call somebody. And then somebody's like, wait, what are you doing? Wait, why are you doing, why are you researching that? And then suddenly they've inspired someone to kind of get involved. And I know of a lot of conservators who that's, that's the case of what, what happens with them. I think a great example of that is Melissa Lewis, who is an incredible conservator, used to work at the DNA, now runs her own practice of modern British conservation. And she um, she'll never proclaim it herself, <laughs> but she's really, really become quite innovative in, um, in, in ecological chemicals and ecological treatments that we can do as conservators. So trying to be less wasteful, trying to use chemicals that are uh, safer for the environment. I mean, we use a lot of acetone and that's not great. <laughs> and so looking at alternatives to things like that, looking at alternative, uh, safer, um, lightning methods, not like bleaching but actually lightning and things like that which are really important like I don't know anybody else who's really going and doing that and she's working with a lot of scientists who are like wow maybe we should tell other people in other fields to do that we're gonna get some people to give you a call and you know that's it inspires people to do it so it's yeah it usually starts with one project somebody has a project that's just you know can't do it themselves can't they, they can't research it any further and, and they need someone else. But yeah, I don't know. Well, it's not like a formal crusade. It's just like, <laughs> it's just when I'm like, and another thing. So, <laughs> I really hope it will work out. I hope so too. I think it would really help people. Yeah. I think yeah. it's already happening anyway. Like there's, there's more and more talks and more and more conversation, not conservation. Um, people are being more open and um, like conservatives are looking more and more into sustainability and um, yeah. a lot and how our, the materials we use, what kind of imprint they, they imprint they have and whatnot. So yeah, I think things are changing. We are- Yeah, they've definitely changed a lot so far. Yeah. <laughs> That's it for today. Uh, thanks a lot uh, to Angelina and Ashley. Uh, it was a great talk. Uh, I also would like to uh, 
say thanks to our viewers and our supporters and our community, especially to uh, people who uh, support us on Patreon. Uh, thanks to your pledges, we can uh, cover expenses on editing these videos. Uh, we have a lot of uh, ideas on how to improve and make our podcast uh, bigger in this uh, this year. We, we, we plan to invite a French speaking co-host to uh, talk to different uh, professionals in France and uh, other French speaking regions of the world. So uh, if you're able to support us, please consider uh, doing that. Pledge just start with only one dollar or one euro. And uh, thanks again for watching. See you next time. Bye. Hi, thank you.